Chapter Thirteen of Sister Simon's Murder Case by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Thirteen. At one o'clock in the morning, the waterfront was as quiet as it would ever be. The jukeboxes had stopped their blaring. The skates were all hung up in the roller rink, and the rifles racked in the shooting gallery. Except for a big semi-truck rolling down the hill to the bridge, Main Street was clear of traffic. The man trudged along the high sidewalk, his head down. Without the orange turban and in baggy tans, he was an inconspicuous figure. At the top of the boat company's fine stairs, he glanced quickly up and down the street, then let himself down a careful step at a time to the Riverside Park. Cutting across the brown sod to the cluster of trailers, he went straight to a small, weather-beaten one, knocked, and without waiting tried the door. It did not open. A fierce barking began inside, a voice swore, and the barking subsided to a growl. The mind-reader put his face close to the keyhole. It's Smith. Let me in. The voice swore again and muttered something about the middle of the night. But there was the creak of a bedspring, and in a few moments the sound of a key turning in the lock. The man didn't wait for the door to open. Pushing hard, he slipped inside. The dog went into a fit of growling. "'Shut up, Barker,' Merlin snapped. "'Lou, turn on a light before he takes a chunk out of me. "'Who does he think I am, a cop?' "'You never know.' The light switch clicked. Even with her hair combed, Lou Tobias couldn't be called a good-looking woman. Routed out of bed without the heavy makeup and in a crumpled housecoat, she was a hard-favored sight. Along her jaws was a stubble equal to Merlin's. The mind-reader tramped across to the Davenport, Lou's trailer always looked as if she were having a rummage sale. Pushing aside some magazines and a bread wrapper, he sat down. He hated to say what he had to say, but after all, it was what he had come for. I made a mistake tonight, Lou. What's different about that? He drew his sleeve across his forehead and looked at the dark streak. I went out to the hospital. What for? The girl. She's getting too close. And what were you going to do about it, Smith? It was Pico's idea, not mine. Scare the daylights out of her. Put her off snooping. But I... He shrugged broadly. Well, I picked the wrong place. How do you mean you picked the wrong place? Merlin's eyes went clear around the trailer, over the gingy bed, the sink filled with bottles, the cluttered table, and down to Lou's bare feet. I got into the convent and some old nosy caught me at it. The dog had lain down and was looking at Paul. Merlin watched him because he dared not look up at Lou. With a wide sweep of her arm, she cleared a space on the table. A can of milk bounced to the floor and rolled, leaving a white path behind it. Barker stretched his neck to look at the milk. Lou swung one leg up to half sit on the table. "'So you got into the convent,' she said in a venomously soft tone. "'You know what happens now. Now they'll put a cop there day and night.' I told you we'd get around to her, but you can't wait. No, you gotta act. Quick like an elephant, clumsy, stupid. Merlin spread his hands helplessly. She was asking if I remember the woman, Danny Greer, Lou. Well, what of it? You were there. So was I. So was Pico. So were a hundred other people. If you keep your head, we're all right. I had to do something. Lou, swearing quietly, dug a cigarette pack out of the mess on the table. 
I run the shooting gallery open and above board. I make a production out of being respectable. I don't get in trouble with the cops, ever. And what happens? I'm in trouble up to my neck. Not yet, Lou. What you mean, not yet? Wakeley was here. He went away, didn't he? He'll be back. He said we're all kind of a brotherhood, us carnies. We show up in the same places year after year, follow a route north in the summer, south in the winter. We'd stick together, he said. Merlin gave a sour laugh. How long could we stick together if we didn't have something on each other? Brotherhood, my eye. Wakeley ain't a fool. Lou turned cold eyes on her visitor. And mother's little helper, here, he comes along to make things double easy for the cop. You a mind reader? If you were worth your weight in garbage, you'd still be a no-count bum. The dog leaped up, growling. There had been no knock, but the doorknob turned. Almost with the turning, the mud artist swung into the trailer. Lou showed no surprise. Barker went back to licking at the milk. The newcomer did not look as if he had been asleep. He glanced at Merlin. Oh, you, he said. I saw the light. What's up? More of same, Lou replied bitterly. I'm sick of it. Too bad. It ain't grim enough we got cops digging around. This sharpie here, he's got a crawl in the convent window. Pico threw back his head, roaring with laughter. You're drinking the wrong brand again, Smith. What you laughing for? Lou demanded. Pico's face hardened. I'll laugh whenever I feel like it, and don't you forget it, he said quietly. Going to the sink, he began to upend bottles, tossing them in the direction of the trash box, when he found them empty. Lou watched him in sullen silence. Merlin drew his tongue across his lip. It would have been so much better if he hadn't come here. He could see that now. He hated to be near Pico. What if the fellow did hold the whip hand? He didn't have to be so brazen about it, as he'd been lately. You and me, we're going to talk pretty soon, Junior, Lou told Pico. What about? Facts of life. Not interested. No. Lou jerked an empty sardine can toward her and ground out the cigarette. Going down on her knees, she shoved aside Merlin's feet, gripped under the Davenport, brought out a small shabby suitcase, and tossed it up on the pile of magazines. A sick trembling ran through Merlin. There was very little room for both him and the suitcase, and he drew away until he did not touch it. Lou sat back on her heels. Interested yet, Pico? He gave an insolent shrug. That's your baby. What if I'm all through doing the dirty work? Then I'd be ready to discuss the facts of life. Jailbreaks, for instance. Lou's face turned beet red, and she began to lumber to her feet, tripping on the housecoat. Merlin had been present during some of their brawls, and he had no stomach for another. Squeezing past Lou, he brushed the sardine can off the table and stepped on Barker's paw, but he made it to the door and out. He certainly never talked to Pico like that. Get him all riled up. Live and let live. Only things were certainly getting more complicated than they'd been in the beginning. Wiping his forehead, Merlin stood listening for the yelling to begin. But there were only a few gutturally vehement remarks and then silence. His nerves reached like antennae toward the trailer screen. The sash was pushed up to let in air, and there was a screen covered with a sagging curtain. He could see over the curtain if he could climb that high. In the dark, being very quiet, he rummaged around until he found a wash tub in a box. Turning the tub wrong side up, he set the box on top and mounted his perch. By stretching, he could see into the trailer. 
The Davenport was immediately under the window. Lou, facing Merlin, had opened the suitcase and was bent over it. Pico lounged against the sink, lazily lighting a cigarette, his beard like a shadow across his face. Merlin wanted to see what Lou was doing. He raised himself on tiptoe. Lou, bending over the suitcase, had let go of the housecoat, and the front bagged open to the waist. The bare torso it disclosed was that of a man. Merlin let himself down to the tub, and then to the ground. He was always revolted, somehow, by any reminder that Lou merely pretended to be a woman. Good reason for a disguise, of course. Nobody would choose to go back to jail. But why not keep his male identity and go off to Siam or the North Pole? Trudging away, Merlin tried to bring some sort of order out of his rattled thoughts. He was so keen at solving other people's problems. Why not his own? He had tried tonight. All he had accomplished was to arouse the convent full of women and make himself a laughingstock for Lou and Pico. The river at half-past seven in the morning was more quiet than it had been even in pioneer days. Then the still depths were rocky, murderous rapids, where lumberjacks lost their lives, breaking log jams, and Indian canoes were caught in the eddies and whirled to pieces. Now in the great backwater above the dam, there was only the tiny splash of oars as Ted rode along. The swallows, although they appeared to be numbered in the thousands, made no slightest sound as they swooped low over the water after bugs or winged back to the cliffs honeycombed with their nests. You'd wonder how they all know which hole is theirs, Lizette said. Do you suppose they ever get mixed up? Envy the neighbor's wife and kitties by mistake? I doubt it, Ted answered. Instinct is a pretty trusty commodity. Instinct such as the birds have, maybe, not ours. Like what? Like self-preservation. That's what keeps our murderer going. He's killing now to protect himself. Could be, but you can't attribute killing to an instinct. That's using his intelligence, and he's gone berserk. Ted, if he's killed Jenny... Let's not cross that bridge yet, honey. Lizette trailed her fingers in the cool water. It was a shame to spoil the morning with talk of murder. But all night long she had run to listen every time Poppy answered the phone, hoping it was some word about Jenny. But none had come. She wasn't doing much, going after Jim Bowie and his gun, but it was better than nothing. Today would have to bring something in the way of a solution to Jenny's disappearance. It just wasn't possible to go on and on, waiting. Today, up in Marshlands, they would be having the Blueberry Festival. Without Jenny. The little boat rounded a bluff and slid up beside the dock, where the excursion boats had stopped for the trip up the Witch's Gorge. Ted threw a rope around a post and tied it firmly. Then, with one foot in the boat and the other on the dock, he yelled out a hand to Lizette. Come on, lady, all ashore that's going ashore. Lizette stepped out beside him. Above them, on top of the bluff, was the Barney structure, where the tourists bought coffee and postcards, its shutters closed at this early hour. A narrow path led past the flight of steps and immediately into the gorge, the entrance used by all the guides. Starting along it, Lizette came to a sudden stop. In the middle of the path lay a small rock, and from under the rock protruded a folded piece of paper. "'What in the world?' she said, and stooped to push aside the stone. "'Ted, it's a map, and it has your name on it.' The lettering was done in crown. Ted, with a very crooked E. "'Some kid. Let's see, Liz.' 
the map was the printed sketch of the river in the tributary gorges which was given away free up above in the coffee shop there was usually a box of the maps outside the door a note was written in crayon on the back don't say nothing because i am not supposed to be here but i found a girl she is in the cave with the rocks piled up good you look and see a friend lizette read the note over ted's elbow ted what cave is it jenny his hand had fallen flat on the writing crumpling it into a ball liz now let's not go off the deep end this could be just a a joke you stay here and i'll liz come back but lizette was already off at a staggering run up the narrow sidewalk leading into the gorge she could hear herself sobbing in the same way she had heard herself screaming when she found henry waddy almost as if it were someone else making the noise slamming into the railing where it turned suddenly she slid her palm along it and felt slivers piercing in there were no rocks piled up here no cave nothing out of the ordinary except the chill dampness that always seemed odd on a summer day because it made you see your breath and steam she could hear ted behind her begging her to stop once he caught hold of her but she pulled away squeezing through the fat man's misery she bumped her head on an outcropping and the sharp pain was like a stimulant to push her along it couldn't be far now to the end of the ravine if someone had played a cruel joke they would soon know ted she screamed there it is the rocks the rocks lizette threw herself between the railing slats and began to tear at the stones breaking her fingernails bruising her hands it was not a joke the girl was in the cave the girl who would have to be jenny darling let me ted urged trying to be calm but he sent the rocks rolling daylight filtered past into the glacial cell in the dimness a little grayer than lizette had seen it before lay a fold of the orchid dress the small boat floated down so close to the river bank that at times it struck a willow root and careened sideways merlin trying to keep from being dumped by the swift current swore softly to himself he was no riverman he should have stayed ashore walked hitchhiked anything but this only he had to do something inconspicuous and the boat had seemed like the ready solution it was the same boat in which the girl and ted had made their hasty return from some expedition up in the other direction merlin prowling restlessly through the back quarters of the nickelodeon palace had seen their almost frantic landing ted's fumbling with the painter the girls rush away from him toward the stairs he didn't know then what it meant later he did pushing out his lower lip he blew trying to cool his face it didn't help he peered ahead through the willows other than to put as much distance as possible between himself and wakeley he hadn't thought of any particular destination when he started out but the ghost town would do as well as anything it had to be along here somewhere the journey already had felt like fifty miles so it must be at least two the current slammed the boat against the protruding stump, yanked it free, and shot it around the bend. There, straight ahead, were the remains of a rickety old dock. Merlin dug the oars deep. The boat, for once, went where he intended, and came up with a whack against the pilings. He climbed out thankfully. He had the boat tied before he remembered that anyone coming down the river hunting him would surely see the craft. Turn it loose and let it drift away. But he might need it again. Pull it up into the willows. That would be safe. 
Getting the heavy boat into the underbrush was hard work for his soft muscles, and his tan shirt was dark down the back before the task was done to his liking. He had to sit down then on the dock, for his heart was thudding as if it would burst. He must decide, before it was too late to go back, whether absence was a good idea. The empty tent would naturally draw Wakeley's attention, but flight didn't have to be an indication of guilt. It could mean you merely wanted to get away and think things over, get the proper perspective. Well, get it quick. Merlin wiped his face, stood up, and peeled off his shirt. Dipping it in the water, he wrung it out and put it on again. But there was no real defense against the muggy heat. The cool morning had become sultry by noon, and now in early afternoon the sky was overcast and yellow, seeming to cup the heat down against the earth. Puffing hugely, he trudged up through the wide-open space between the willows and came into the ghost town. Empty houses showed windows empty of glass and doors hanging by one hinge. The place had never been very big. There was supposed to be a sawmill somewhere. Coming to the first house, he sat down in the gaping doorway and stared at the ground in front of him. They had found the girl. He had hoped it wouldn't be so soon. Exactly how the discovery had come about, he didn't know. But the young snooper from the hospital and the guide had made it. That was one of the things he had heard Wakeley throwing at Lou, back there in the trailer. If he'd walked in on Lou, as he had had every intention of doing, there would have been the two of them in jail now, not just Lou. Merlin began to shake again, as he had when he cowered outside the trailer, listening. We would stay too long in the housecoat, for Wakeley had torn off the disguise. You could tell from the things he said. And then he searched the trailer, not very far either, because he came on the suitcase right away. Merlin squirmed out of the wet shirt. It didn't feel good any more. He couldn't sit still. Lumbering to his feet, the shirt dragging from one hand, he started up the desolate, dusty expanse that used to be Main Street. Humley weeds sprangled where people had walked. Some of them must have had problems, but not like his. For the first time in years, he wondered if the new life he had taken on shouldn't have been something safe, like plumbing. Mind readers found out things. It was an occupational hazard, in a way, that people would sometimes think you'd found out far more than you had. They never stopped to realize that their behavior broadcast their state of mind to anyone who observed them keenly. Fear, for instance. Fear was unmistakably easy to read. In the middle of the street, among ragweed waist-high, Merlin stopped and looked around. Where was he going? There was no refuge here. Nothing to eat, either. An ancient sign that said, Café, lay on the ground, face up to the sky like a dead man. He looked back to where the willows half hid the dock. No refuge anywhere, but no return. Would he starve to death in this godforsaken place? Merlin the Magnificent, he said aloud. A small garter snake slipped out of the ragweed, flashed its forked tongue at him, and glided on. In the whole wretched town, he and the snake appeared to be the only things alive. As he stood there, a raindrop hit him on the head. Sister Simon stood at the foot of Vince Barron's bed and watched the man's uneasy, jerking movements. "'He's been doing that for the last hour,' the special nurse said. "'I haven't telephoned Wakeley. He said to let him know the minute Mr. Barron came around, but there's no use yet.' "'He hasn't spoken?' "'No, you know how they do, sister, coming out of a concussion. You'd think they were wrestling the whole human race.' 
Maybe he's fighting off his assailant. He could have passed out, fighting, and he's just carrying on from there. It's possible, said the nun. Of course, for him there has been no interval of lying here in the hospital. They don't know how this happened, do they? I guess not, sister. The secretary said she didn't go into his office until afternoon, and then she thought he had come in while she was out to lunch and gone to sleep. Something he never did before. He's hardly the type for afternoon naps. But she didn't see anything wrong with him? No, and there's very little mark on his head. The blow must have been made with a flat weapon of some kind. If it came from behind, he wouldn't know who hit him. Not even what, sister? The nurse straightened the already straight sheet. She was a stout, white-haired woman, handsome in her white uniform. Well, Wakely's hoping for some scrap of a clue. This is really a crazy, mixed-up mess, isn't it, sister? Finding that poor kid up the ravine. Honestly, you wonder who's next. Sister Simon left, walked down all the stairs and out across the alley to the nurse's home. The answer to the question of who's next was almost too obvious. Everyone who knew Steve from the old days had been put out of the way. The only remaining threat was the girl who had seen him on the waterfront. But she couldn't know him as Steve. If only there were some way to reassure him. He hadn't waited, before, to have his fears quieted. He had struck brutally and finally. Three times. Four, counting Vince Barron. Would it be five, before the total could be counted? The sister tapped on Lizette's door heard a faint answer, and entered. The girl sat in the little rocker, a notebook open on her lap. Rain was pelting in the window, making inky puddles out of the writing on the open pages. "'You're getting all wet, dear,' Sister Simon said, and went quickly to close the window. Lizette touched her own arm, then looked at her fingers as if she were surprised to find them wet. "'It's not a very good day for the Blueberry Festival, is it, sister?' The nun had to swallow hard before she could reply. Just a shower, I expect. Where can I find a towel? Jenny has a clean one, on the back of the closet door. They didn't talk while Sister Simon dried Lizette's arm and dabbed up the water on the floor. All the odds and ends of Jenny's life were still around, like the clean towel she hadn't had a chance to use. Her stuffed rooster was perched on the pillow, a brush with a few blonde hairs on the dresser and the waste-basket, the face-tissues she had probably used, her clothes still in the closet. But her folks were on their way to town, and they would take the little physical things that remained of Jenny, and every trace of her would be blotted away, like the puddle from the floor. But Jenny was only an element of a greater entity. Sorrow for her must not obliterate the real concern which must be for the girl who sat like a rag doll in the rocker. Sister Simon dropped the wet towel beside the door and returned to stand before Jenny. She didn't quite know how to begin, because she had no real idea of what she wanted to say. A policeman had brought Lizette home this morning, because Ted was needed to lead the rescue party up the gorge, and Dr. Barney had given her a sedative. Even with that, she had not slept well, Sybil reported, and the grogginess still persisted. Mother Richard had done the only sensible thing in telephoning Lizette's parents, and yet, if they should take her home, as they would undoubtedly want to do, wouldn't the killer follow? Three hundred miles was a short span for one who had brooded twenty years. Wakely might refuse to let her go, but he was on the high road, where he might not see. Trembling, the nun sat down on Jenny's bed and clasped her hands tightly in her lap. 
Dear Lord, she prayed, don't let this poor child see how panicky and confused I am. Send us a solution, anything, anything to end this deadly suspense. Ted called up, she said. Her voice didn't sound too bad. He asked for me when they told him you were asleep. Was I? You had a nice long nap. Is he coming over? After dinner this evening, yes. He said the boats won't be going out, not in the rain. Ted had said a good deal more, too, that things were so disorganized at Waddy's it was like an anthill stirred up, everybody going off on tangents. The old gentleman had been the heartbeat of the place, and without him there was chaos. But if there was anything Ted could do for Liz, he'd be right over. No, nothing, the sister had said. And that was so terribly true. Nothing to do, except preserve her from the killer. Jenny had tried to do that very thing. I can't go chasing around the waterfront, Sister Simon pondered. A nun can't do things like that. I can't draw him out of his lair. But Lizette could. Why not concoct some scheme using her as bait? The idea was so repugnant that the sister got up quickly and walked around the bed. Lizette was not watching. She was staring down at the rolling pages of her notebook, so drawn and limp that she seemed to be as drained of life as Jenny. That she was in danger now seemed as certain as the rain beating on the window. The killer was bound to strike at her, and there was no knowing where or when. But, if the time could be chosen for him... Lizette, the sister said abruptly, Lizette, would you do something to bring about a climax to this terrible situation? It may sound to you as if it would be dangerous, but actually you'd be safer than you are right now, because the police would be protecting you. Would you do it, Lizette? Lizette's dark eyes did widen with apprehension, but she said evenly enough, Sister, I'd do anything, and I do mean anything, to get even for Jenny. What is it? Sister Simon found she had to sit down again, for her knees were giving way. Let me explain a little, Lizette. We know quite a few things about this man, whoever he is. He's connected with the waterfront. We know that. Danny was frightened there. You talked to the mind reader, and immediately a prowler crawls in the convent window. The laundromat girl told you that Jenny headed toward the waterfront with the suitcase. And she'd have had to be taken to the gorge by boat. It's the only way you can get there from town. Lizette's face went even whiter. Sister, do you think she was dead when he... Dear, let's not do that. Let's stick to what we know. Bartholomew Lawrence, for instance. Don't you mean Willis? And I didn't get the gun. It doesn't matter. I called Bartholomew, the brother, this evening. He said Willis was a quiet boy, always satisfied with his job and his home and his girl. He was going to be married. There is no reason why he should disappear. So the only answer is that he was made to disappear. Somebody made him run away? No, he was murdered. It's Willis's bones, not Steve's, that were found in the ravine. Liz, Steve is still alive. The girl sat motionless for a long minute. Then she closed the notebook and laid it on the desk beside her. So he's the one Danny saw that night. I'm sure of it, Liz. But why was she so scared to death? Because she knew he was a killer. You mean of Jim MacArthur? Yes, the hunting accident. That was not an accident at all. Somehow Elizabeth knew what had happened, 
and so Steve sneaked back and killed her, too. Perhaps he didn't think of Danny's being a menace to him, not at that time, and Henry Waddy might have been inaccessible for some reason. Steve couldn't linger around town, waiting. Elizabeth was the only one who would have done anything to avenge Jim, anyway. He must have felt safe with her out of the way. He even dare come back here now, perhaps disguised in some manner. And then Danny blundered on to him. But how, sister? I don't know. He didn't quite succeed with Vince Barron, but it's obvious he has killed everyone else who he thought could identify him. Jenny, too. Everyone. Except me. Except you. Sister Simon took a deep and painful breath. And you can be the one to... to bring him out into the open. What would I do, sister? Make him strike again. At you. And the police would catch him. Sister Simon was amazed at herself, really. When she took the veil, she had put off her identity as a policeman's daughter. Mother Richard would never approve. St. Augustine might get a kick out of it, but not Mother. The girl stood up. I'm ready, sister. You want me to go down on the waterfront? Is that it? That's it, Lizette. Now? Sister Simon looked past her to the window. The rain would have driven away the crowd from the waterfront. No, no, she said quickly. When the rain stops, tomorrow morning, I'll call Chief Wakely and explain all about it. He'll never agree, sister. Oh, yes, he will. But the nun wondered as she hurried out into the hall whether Wakely could be so easy to convince. For the present, she need not concern herself with the decision. Perhaps, before she would find it necessary to make that decision, Wakely's high road might have led him to the solution. She opened the outside door and was hit by a splash of rain. Why walk down the long alley unprotected when she could just as well keep dry by going to the hospital? She darted across the basement door and let herself in. Perhaps because the little dark door of the morgue was a dominant feature here, this corner of the hospital always reminded her forcibly of Danny's murder. The sister glanced at her watch. She had a few minutes before prayers, time enough to look in again on Vince Barron. Scarcely a half-hour had passed since she had seen him, but he could have regained consciousness in the meantime. With these cases of concussion, you never knew. The elevator was down. She stepped in and pressed the second-floor button. The door of Vince Barron's room was open a few inches, and Sister Simon tapped lightly, then put her head in. The white-haired nurse, standing at the foot of the bed, nodded. He woke up a few minutes ago, but he's still groggy. Has he said anything? Nothing coherent. I gathered that somebody bopped him when he was putting his car away last night. He could have been knocked out for a minute and then came to enough to make it into the house. Funny thing how a blow on the head can work that way, sometimes. One patient I had. Here he comes again, sister. The nurse moved close on the farther side of the bed. Vince was stirring restlessly and muttering. Sister Simon bent over him and took his limp hand in both of hers. She was almost certain he had mumbled the name of Steve. "'You're awake, Mr. Barron,' she said quietly. "'Open your eyes. Come on. That's right. What about Steve? Was it he that hit you?' He tried to shake his head and winced with pain. "'Don't do that,' the nurse said. Talking won't hurt you, but don't move your head. 
Did you see him? Sister Simon persisted. No, no, nobody, but Steve. Steve's the killer. Why? Can you tell me why, Mr. Barron? Always was a brat. Never worked. Jim worked for what he had, but Steve wouldn't. Took everything away from Jim. Wanted Elizabeth. Killed Jim to get her. But she wouldn't. Wouldn't. The man's eyes closed. Sister Simon shook his hand gently. Why did he kill Danny? Danny, Mr. Barron. She must have known him. And Henry, too. Is Steve in town? The small sound he made could have been no, but it also could have been the sigh on which he slid back into unconsciousness. Sister Simon straightened, frowning. It would be cruel as well as impossible to try to waken him. That's why I haven't called Wakely yet, the nurse said. By the time he'd get here, our man would be gone again. By the way, sister, who's this Steve character, anyway? If only I knew, Sister Simon murmured, and she left quickly. Vince Barron's confirmation, hazy though it might be, was the first definite proof that her theory was right. Now she must decide whether to send Lizette off as bait, and perhaps catch the murderer red-handed, or not to send her and leave him free to kill again. The nun, hurrying as always, traversed the old corridors to the alley, ducked out into the rain, and a moment later was running up the steps of the octagon house. She had stopped to stamp off the bits of leaves which clung to her shoes when the door opened and Sister Joe came out. She had been crying. Carefully held against her, she carried a letter in an envelope that had obviously been handled a good deal. Read it, she said, and thrust the letter at Sister Simon. I couldn't forget it, although I tried. Read it, sister, and tell me what I should have done. Puzzled, Sister Simon looked down at the envelope. It was addressed to Sister Mary Joseph, St. Matthew's Hospital, and it had been postmarked a week earlier in Beechwood Falls. End of chapter 13